Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. All right, my name is Emily, and I'm going to be reading this morning's scripture reading. It comes from John 6, 41 through 59. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds me, feeds on me, will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. I appreciate that. Uh, that was the wrong address. I tried something new and I flopped on it, so I apologize. She read the right thing. That was the wrong thing. I'm sorry. Uh, but thank you guys for, for the privilege of getting to preach God's word to you. Um, it, I, if you couldn't tell already, this isn't a very popular text. Right, And if you're here for the first time and if you're like new to Christianity or like still skeptical, like things just got weird, right? <laughs> Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. If your friend, <laughs> if you're here and a friend invited you because they, they want you to like experience Christ and whatnot, you, you, what did you bring me to, right? Like, my goodness, this is going to be interesting. This is your first time. This is going to be weird, right? But uh, we're, we're, it's not as bad as it looks, right? Like uh, part of this is getting to understand what God says in his word. So hopefully we'll get after that this morning. Um, we've been in this series uh, for 28 weeks now. 
going through the Gospel of John uh, in a series called I Am. We're trying to let Jesus tell us who he is rather than come to him with our own preconceived understandings that we picked up along the way and let him define himself for us. And so one one of the ways that he does that very clearly in the Gospel of John is he tells us exactly who he is when he says, I am, this ego amy statements, right? That's the Greek. Uh, He says, I am these many things. And he says it seven times. And yet, two weeks ago, we were in the passage before this where Jesus says, I am the what? Bread of life. I am the bread of life. Which the ultimate point of that was that the good life, the life that God wants us to have in Christ is only found in and sustained by Jesus himself. Jesus is the source and the sustainer of the good life, right? So we go to him daily and we partake in his bread and he invigorates our hearts and, and, and allows us to walk in obedience to him, strengthens us to be obedient to him. So I know that today, regardless of whether or not this is going to be a popular text or a sermon for you or trendy, right? I'm not going to have like a big point for you to slap, be slapped across the face with and then go out on your way. I will promise you this, your affections for Jesus will be greatly stirred today as we get to hear what he says here. Now with that, um, gro- uh, gr- growing up, uh, we got to be a part of like some of the, the big family events that I grew up with, I realized that that's a privilege. A lot of people didn't get to have a lot of relationship with their families. Uh, my family did, and I praise God for that uh, daily. I, I'm just grateful for the family I grew up with and the privileges we had. And, and so I knew my grandparents well. I knew my cousins well, my aunts and uncles all really well. Um, my dad is the oldest of three boys. Uh, my grandpa, we would call him Poopa. Uh, which is Swedish for grandpa. We're of Swedish descent. Uh, my grandma would not allow us to call her Puma. Um, but technically, it should have been Pupa and Puma. And Puma uh, loved to dote on her three boys. And she would do that by making things that were only unique to her family, you, things that, uh, that none of us really on the outside could appreciate. So one of them was raisin pie. She would bake my dad and my uncles their own raisin pies. How many of you ever had or tried raisin pie? Some of you are shaking your head like, I'm never going to try it again, right? Yeah, I mean, it just, it was weird. Like, you open it up and just raisins, like, of all different colors and shapes fall out. It's weird. Well, she would also, I think her thing was raisins, because she would also bake my, my dad and my uncles raisin bread, raisin bread right? And as a kid, you don't, you don't need to put raisins in bread. In fact, you don't need to put nuts or anything else in bread. Just leave the bread alone, right? So I heard, I saw somebody testify, like, yes, it's about time, right? You don't need to put it, you know, the, my last name, Brud, in Swedish means eats bread. So like, I, I'm a connoisseur of bread. I will take you to the best breads locally, and none of them will have nuts or raisins in them. But at the same time, like my, my, my dad and my uncles loved this bread. They weren't, they, they weren't like trying to be nice on my grandma, like, yeah, grandma, thanks, right? Like they actually really enjoyed it. They, t- they would put butter on it and sprinkle some cinnamon sugar on it. They'd toast it. Oh, man, and it was a delight for them. I'd look at the bread and say, nah, there's no way that's going in my mouth, right? Well, 
Later on in life, I finally just started to develop a taste for it. I started finally enjoying the bread that my grandmother made. One of the things that we're going to find out this week is that there were people who come to see Jesus as this bread of life, and they just don't want it. It's got some raisins in it, apparently. Something that they don't like about it. Something in it that keeps them from wanting this bread of life. And so uh, I will go ahead and kind of spoil next week for you. After what Jesus says here, many of the disciples leave and walk away. They don't, they don't accept him. They don't receive Jesus. So here's, here's kind of a recap of last week. Jesus' charge was, I am the bread and you need to come eat of the bread. You need to come eat of the bread for your life because I'm the thing that came down from heaven to give you life. I'm the manna that was in the wilderness. Well, with that charge, the, the, the Jews that he's talking to, apparently now we find out that he's in a synagogue in Capernaum, right? He's in the place where they gathered to talk about God and his word. The, the, the passage today shows us that this crowd, when they heard Jesus say these things about himself, they get a little tripped up. They get a little weary of it. Look at verse 41. Verse 41. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Guys, the Greek word for grumbling is gongizo. You want to say that? Gongizo. You got to say it with some, right? It just sounds like you're grumbling. I mean, it literally sounds like it. So, so here's what's funny. Like they're in this logical pickle, so to speak. They, they, they hear that Jesus is saying, I'm the bread that has come down out of heaven. Remember that Jesus is saying this in Capernaum, which is a city in Galilee, which he grew up in the region of Galilee, in a city, Galilee, in a city called Nazareth, in his hometown, right? So these people, they're sitting there like, you can see what they say. They say, wait, 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 wait. We, we know. We know he's got parents here. We know he just didn't fly down on a cloud from heaven. We know he, he was born he has a mom and a dad. We know Joseph. Joseph, he, Joseph, that guy, he was in the Nazareth softball league on Tuesday nights. He was the one making all the bats for us to use. We know Mary, right? How can Jesus say he came down out of heaven? You know, what's so ironic, though, is that they have no clue about the realities behind the reality. It's ironic. They have no clue about the incarnation. They have no clue about this virgin birth that we believe and they just start to, <sighs> you know, it's not the first time that people have grumbled when God gives bread from heaven. In fact, it's already happened before. Back in Exodus 16, the Jews are grumbling. They've left uh, Egypt, they've gone across the Red Sea miraculously by God's power, rescuing them, ransoming them out of slavery to Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness, and they're grumbling. I'm going to paraphrase what they said. They said, man, we, ah, we wish that we had died in Egypt. At least we would have died next to pots of meat and abundant bread. We're going to die here of starvation. And they're grumbling. And so what does God do? He graciously starts sending them manna from heaven 
The manna covers the ground in the morning, and then he sends them quail in the evening. They've got meat and bread from heaven sent by God. You think that's enough? No, actually, in the next chapter, they grumble again. They're grumbling again, even after the bread's been given. Guys, the Jews really did hold up to their name, Israel. Israel means wrestles with God. It really did. And here they are again, grumbling at the bread that's been given from heaven. Guys, I don't want to minimize what's happening here. It's not just, right? This is not just simply insulting to Jesus. This is actually really dangerous. That their mindset's there. It's a really dangerous thing because what they're doing is they're reducing knowing the nature and the character of our infinite Savior. They're reducing that to just talking it over and arriving at a certain conclusion. That's dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. Because it separates the whole origin and the pursuit of faith from its only source, which is God. Only God can give faith. It's not something we can muster up within ourselves. This is what Jesus argues. He confronts this attitude, this ridiculous grumbling. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered the grumbling Jews. Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. That's a quote from Isaiah. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, the Father's been talking about Jesus the whole time. And not only that, verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So they're grumbling. They're grumbling, trying to hurdle this intellectual barrier that won't change much. Why is that? Because even if they jump the hurdle, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father first draws them. Now, some of you are already like, wait, what about free will, predestination, like all this? I am not interested in debating the merits or the weaknesses of Calvinism and Arminianism at this point. I am interested in letting God's word speak as it is. And with that, we see that the Father has to draw someone for that someone to even start to have any inclination towards Christ. They won't have it unless the Father first draws them. The word draw, if you want to circle that in your Bible, because it's literally what started your faith. The word is helkio, and it literally it means to draw or to haul, right? So, so to, to haul something is like to haul a load, right? And, 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 it, and it makes a lot of sense, especially if that's what it took for me to come to faith in Christ. God probably hauled me kicking and screaming out of my sin because I'm radically stubborn. He had to pick me up and put me right in front of Jesus. If he didn't, I wouldn't have known. The word draw here is the same one that's used in John 21. 
when the, when the disciples are fishing and their nets get so full of fish that they can't draw it out of the water into the boat. We also see in the Septuagint Greek of the Old Testament in Jeremiah 38, it's the same word used there, when they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. So literally, no one can get to Jesus unless the Father draws them to Jesus. It's what Jesus confirms here. That is not just simply an intellectual path. It's not that anyone just intellectually arrives at a higher thought that gets them to Jesus. That's not how this works. They don't get there by their own will and wit. Like we see earlier in, in this passage of Jesus and this crowd, they're asking Jesus, hey, hey, what sign would you perform to get us to believe in you? So not only, not only is this process of getting to Jesus not simply reduced to an intellectual thing, it's not, it's not also being impressed by him. He does a certain work that's, oh, that's cool, I'll follow you. It's not that either. Neither intellect nor impression gets you to eat of the Jesus bread. So uh, I, there's, a, there's a book that um, I would strongly commend to you. It's by Nabil Qureshi, right? He's a, uh, a, a prior Muslim who converted to Christianity, and he wrote about his story, and it's incredible. Not only is it mixed with apologetics, it's also his, his biography, his testimony, and it's an incredibly powerful story. So I'll tell you it brief. He was raised in a family that loved Islam, that loved Allah, right, and taught him to love Allah. And he was devout in this. And when he went to college, he joined their debate team. He's a pretty intellectual guy. And on this debate team, he met a friend named David Wood. And David Wood had recently, just a few years prior, received Christ, had just come to Christianity a few years beforehand, and, and he began to challenge Nabil, and Nabil would challenge David. Well, they would start to debate between Islam and Christianity, and, and David would present his view, and Nabil would present his, and there were a lot of intellectual hurdles for Nabil to get over, for him to at least meet halfway. A lot of them had to deal with, like, the Bible. Is this thing reliable? Can we rely on this? And as he's talking with David and he, as he's doing his research and, 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 and actually being responsible for how he thinks about this, he finds out, man, this really is reliable. Actually, you know, the more unreliable thing is the Quran. This is really reliable. Oh boy, what do I do now? Then he had to start dealing with the crucifixion because it, uh, Muslims do not believe, uh, most of them don't believe that he was crucified uh, by, and died on the cross. They believe that he just fell asleep and that he woke up later. That's called the swoon theory. Most of them believe that. So he held to that conviction that Jesus didn't actually die. He was just, he was beaten. He was hung up and nailed on a cross and, and, and stopped breathing, but apparently he didn't die, right? Like, so he dealt with that and David and him started uh, talking and debating and he started doing his research and he found out, man, all the scholars agreed. Jesus died. He died on the cross. So that belief was hurdled over, that obstacle hurdled, right? And then, and then lastly, then you got to deal with the resurrection. If he did die, then he had to come back from life, according to the Christian claim. 
You see, Muslims believe the body was just simply stolen. Well, he had to deal with that, and he did, and it turns out that that intellectual hurdle was jumped over. So every barrier that kept Nabil from Christ intellectually was hurtled over. But that wasn't enough. So that was a three-year process for Nabil with dealing with reason and rationality. But this is the thing that Nabil says in his book. He says, it was then, when he got to this point, that I realized that the value of apologetics and what the arguments had done for me, all my life barriers had been erected that kept me from humbly approaching God and asking him to reveal himself to me. The arguments and apologetics tore down those barriers, positioning me to make a decision to pursue God or not. The work of my intellect was done. But if I really wanted to know God, I had to cast myself upon his mercy and love, relying completely upon him and his willingness to reveal himself to me. You see, the Lord did exactly that. It wasn't hurdling all these uh, intellectual hurdles that got him to Christ. It was when he finally said, all right, all of my barriers are gone. God, if you're, Jesus, if you're Lord, Would you reveal that to me? And he had a series of dreams and visions that were incredible that brought him to surrender his life to Jesus because the Father drew him and revealed himself to him. God doesn't have to reveal himself to anyone who asks for it, but he did. And it turns out that the Father had been drawing Nabil the whole time. I mean, if you, if you want to think about it more thoroughly, like James' argument in James 2, right, when he says even the demons believe and they shudder, they know what's true about Jesus. Intellectually, they are right on point with who Jesus is. In fact, they're probably more on point with who Jesus is than most other people, right? And yet, the J- James' argument is that they have, they have nothing, they, they want to do nothing with Christ. They want to oppose him in every way. So they can be intellectually accurate about Jesus, they can know the truth about who he is, and they can be impressed with the works that he even does, and yet they refuse to eat the Christ bread. So intellectualism isn't the path to faith in Christ. God has to draw you, he has to reveal himself to you. That's what what Jesus says to Peter when Peter professes that that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says to him, blessed are you, uh, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Nothing material did. No, it was our Father in heaven that revealed it to you. So like Peter didn't logically arrive there, the Father drew Peter to that truth. Guys, this isn't anything new to you, hopefully, because we sing about it often when we sing And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen? Amen. Guys, God comes and finds us in our spiritual death, in our intellectual lostness and bondage, and he graciously raises us, he reveals himself to us and draws us to Jesus. And this is exactly why Ephesians 2 says that no one ought to boast about their faith. 
as if it's their own work. No, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. In other words, in this case, this strips us of all any kind of self-congratulations we would get if we come to Christ. Oh, look at me. Look what I did. I started to believe in Jesus today. Well done. That wasn't your work. That was God drawing you. It strips us all of all, all of our pride. Because if we have any kind of faith in Jesus, it's because God has drawn us to Christ. And if he hadn't, we'd still be lost and bound. So, so if, if you came this morning and your ego was up here, it might now be down there. A little bit more. I don't mind is. So this is the first argument that Jesus makes. He's like, no one comes to me will ever, like, it's just, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. And so he confronts their grumbling and moaning. And then verse 47 through 51, let's take a look there. Because he starts reaffirming the themes that he's already talked about prior to this. But then he adds another proof. I'm going to try to run through this quickly. Look at verse 47. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. There's a incredible passage. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they did what? They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, so Jesus is offering another argument or another proof about the nature of himself as the bread Opposed to the manna in the wilderness. Remember, those ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness and, and they went kaputsk, right? They died. The, you eat the Jesus bread, you won't die. Okay, wait a minute, Jesus. Now, if you're, if you're thinking like I'm thinking, I'm just going to go ahead and put before you, my honest reaction was like, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. Because, <laughs> like, I know people who believe in you, Jesus, and they still died. Right? They, 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 they aren't living anymore. In fact, most of the disciples that you, you called to yourself and they followed you, most of them died brutally on your behalf, Jesus. So, so how does this make sense? Like, in fact, we have a whole book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that talks about how many people offered up their life in persecution as martyrdom in their faith in Christ, because of their faith in Christ. Like, come on, Jesus. Like, I don't get this. What are you saying here? Well, this is going to require a little bit more humility and some understanding. If you remember, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were instructed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? God said that the day you do, you will surely die. And what happened? They ate. They ate of the tree. They get found out. They blame one another. God covers them, which is an image of Christ coming, but then he casts them out. Now, wait a minute. Their heart's still beating. I thought, I thought you said they would die. That doesn't make sense. Like, what? Because death isn't the stopping of the heart. Death is separation in biblical understanding. Death is separation. And so surely when they ate of it, they were separated. They died. They lost their intimacy with God in the garden. So, so that first understands that life all of it revolves around our proximity to God. And death is separation from that, from our God. 
So keeping that in mind, fast forward to the wilderness and the manna that they're eating, right? Jesus mentions this manna. You remember the first generation of of Jews that came out of Israel or out of Egypt in slavery. They got to the border of the promised land. They had been eating the manna. They get to the promised land and they get freaked out. They say, no, 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 that's not God. We don't want to, we'd rather go back. And they die because they disbelieved God. That whole first generation died off. That manna didn't secure for them their, their, their place in the promised land. That's what Jesus is arguing here. They, their death was physical, yes, but that's not the argument ultimately that he's making. Their death was a spiritual one. They disbelieved God. They disregarded what he had said in his covenant to them. And they died off. It was the second generation of Jews that entered into the promised land because they what? They believed. So the manna didn't give them life in the promised land. But Jesus is saying, no, if you eat of this bread, you will have life in the promised land. You will eat and have your fill and be raised to life. This Jesus bread, whoever eats of it, Jesus gives them life with God right now and will raise them up to that life at the end of the age to live with God forever. So that's, that's why on that day, when, when, when those who stand before God and refused Christ, they experience what's called in Scripture the second death. Separation eternally from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But Jesus is saying here, if you eat this bread, you will live forever in that promised land. Now, one final third subject that he brings up this morning in answer to the question that you may be asking, well, what exactly is this bread that he's offering? What is the bread that Jesus offers? Is it just like a, a symbolic gesture or is it some concept outside of Jesus? Is it a metaphysical thing? Well, no, no, it's a very physical thing actually. Verse 51b, the second part of verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my what? Flesh. It's my flesh. The bread, Jesus says that we need to eat, that gives life, is his flesh. His Greek word is sarks. Again, that's where things get weird. Just got weird, right? Things were kind of cute, kind of nice. Oh, this gives bread. It's his flesh? Whoa. The flesh is that thing that Jesus, the eternal word, took on in chapter one, verse 14. He says, and the word became what? Flesh. And tabernacled or set up tent and dwelt among us. The Latin word is incarnation. It incarnate to become meat, to become flesh. This is what the word did. As Joseph talked about in the offering, he humbled himself that way. And apparently, Jesus saying that he's the bread, his flesh is the bread that's given for the life of the world, it's hard for the Jews to swallow. Nobody gets it? Okay. I tried. They start to argue, right? Verse 52, at that the Jews argued among themselves, 
How can he do this? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? If you can note the increasing temperament of the crowd, first it was kind of questioning, how'd you get here, right? And then it starts with confusion, and then it moves on to like testing, well, what sign are you gonna do? And then then they're complaining and grumbling, and here they're arguing, and then finally, at the end of this, they're rejecting. But here they're arguing, why? Well, because we know the law says we ain't supposed to eat anybody. That's just clear as day, right? It's not part of the 10 commandments, that's not primary, right? Like, but my goodness, Don't drink people's blood and don't eat them. So what Jesus is saying here is is coming across as just absolutely abhorrent to them. It's like grotesque and confusing. Now, I'll just go ahead and say this. Uh, Some of you may not know this. The early church in the New Testament dealt with a lot of uh, criticism and hatred. And there were three main charges that the early church were, were, were being guilty of according to the outside world. First was atheism because they didn't worship all the other gods. Second was incest, because they called one another brothers and sisters. And third was cannibalism. Apparently, the world believed back then that when the church got together, they ate flesh and drank blood. Okay, wow. So, I mean, the Jews here are arguing like, man, how can he do this? How can he give us his flesh to eat? And what does Jesus do? Like, he's got a perfect chance to be like, whoa, 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 no, 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 that's not what I meant. You misheard me. Here's what I actually mean, right? Does he do that? No, no, he doesn't do that. Instead of backing away, he doubles down. In fact, he triples down. He says the same thing three times. He says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Three times. Look at it. Verse 53 to 58. So Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, There's one, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, there's two, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, there's three, remains in me and I in him. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. So, like, you know how the, the modern-day competition is about how many followers you can keep on Instagram or Twitter, right? Like, when you go to an interview and, and somebody's like, how many followers do you have? I've got 5,368, right? How many do you have? Uh, Two million, right? Clearly, Jesus has very little concern about how many followers uh, he keeps in his numbers, right? He says some really hard things here. Like our savior, our leader, our king says, eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's a reference to the Lord's Supper. That's that's what he's meaning by that. That hasn't been established yet. And this text can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. So we can't say, well, he's just talking about the Lord's Supper there. He might be foreshadowing it, or pointing to the same thing that, that Eucharist points to, but it's not a reference to that. And besides, if it was literal, we never read, like you never see Peter coming up and gnawing on Jesus' arm. Like in the Lord's Supper, you don't see like John reaching over and taking a bite out of his tricep, right? That's just not part of it. So it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. So we know that we're not supposed to eat flesh Physically, in the sense of eat another human being, right? We're not supposed to drink blood. 
that breaks the Old Testament law. So Jesus isn't talking about that per se. But he says that his flesh is what's given for the life of the world. In verse 51, he said that the the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And in that one sentence, you hear the tones, sacrifice. Sacrifice. You see, when sacrifices were made uh, in the Old Testament law, the flesh and the blood of that animal were both offered to atone for sin and to cleanse us of sin. And so the flesh, what was burnt on the altar, was an atoning sacrifice, and the blood was a cleansing sacrifice, per se. So this gift of this bread, this flesh, it's going to be given in death. This flesh is going to be offered in death. So all of this, all of this is pointing to the cross. These people don't realize it yet, but it's pointing us to the crucifixion of Christ where his flesh is torn apart and where his blood is poured out. The cross is the altar that Jesus willingly climbs up on to lay down his life for us, to offer us his flesh and his blood to atone for sin and to cleanse us of it. Guys, you remember we read that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That sin is taken away by the lamb when that lamb's flesh and blood are offered up in sacrifice and we get life in his death again. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 20 is pointing us to. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. Do you guys remember what happened in the temple when Jesus was crucified? What happened to that curtain? Ripped from top to bottom. Jesus' flesh was torn, offered up in sacrifice, and his blood was poured out so that we could have access to the sanctuary of God, so we could be where God is again. And, and, And all we need to do is to come and eat and drink this in. And guys, when we talk about it this way, eating and drinking isn't as far-fetched whenever we understand it as an image of the cross. It's not as, as weird as you may think of it, right? In eating and drinking, are we producing anything? No, in eating and drinking, we're simply receiving and consuming. That's it. Like, we, we don't produce the meal. Now, some of you wives are like, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor Scott. I've been cooking for my husband for the last 40 years. He ain't cooked a meal once. Right, I'm the one who's always prepping the meal. No, no, you didn't prep this meal. This meal came from DoorDash in heaven. This meal came down from heaven. It's a meal that God prepared for us. And in eating and drinking this meal, you've not added anything to it. You just simply received it. Spurgeon argued it this way. He says, we're not giving, we're not offering. No, we're simply taking so like if a queen should eat, 
She'd be as much a receiver of the food as the poor man in the workhouse. Eating is an act of reception in every case. So it is with faith. You do not have to do, you do not have to be or to feel, but only receive. The saving point is not something that comes out of you, but the reception of something imparted to you. Faith is something that the poorest, the vilest, the weakest can partake of because it is not an act requiring power on his part, nor the going forth of anything from him, but simply the receiving into himself. Faith is hungering for God and him satisfying your soul. So do you hunger and thirst for the Christ bread? If you do, that's because God is graciously drawing you. And if so, it's free. You can receive what he's freely offered to you. His body is true food. His blood is true drink. That were offered up for you, crucified for you, poured out for you, flowing down for you. God has set the table, and the choice food will give life eternal. And the instant you feast at this table of the Christ bread and the Christ blood, life forevermore with Him. Every failure, every mess up, every temptation and struggle that, that you think is on your account, gone forevermore. The moment you feast, crucified with Christ. Guys, this, this table is free and it's yours for the taking. This is clearly the gospel. This text is all about pointing us to the cross. And rightly so, because there the bread and the blood are offered. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.